0: Katie Starkweather, for those who are unfamiliar with her work, is a biological and biocultural anthropologist who uses life history and developmental frameworks to study how ecology and behavior interact to influence health, nutritional, and reproductive outcomes in humans. She's specifically interested in the trade-offs women make between work and child care and how these trade-offs shape gender divisions of labor, household economics and parental investment as, as well as biological outcomes for all family members. So as you'll you'll hear today, you'll think, wait, she's interested in how women make trade offs, but we're talking about paternal care today, right? So so stay tuned for that. Per field work. Uh, that we're going to talk to her for the most part about today, I think, it takes place in, in rural Bangladesh with a traditionally boat-dwelling, semi-nomadic uh, community called the Um uh, uh, She's been working with them since 2011. She directs the Shodagore Longitudinal Health and Demography Project, and she's got a field t- team there year-round collecting longitudinal data on things like household economics, time expenditures, subsistence, mobility, and individual health and reproduction. And she also in 2019 began collecting biomarkers of inflammation, anemia, and diabetes. And she also uh, has another field site. So we're gonna hear about all of this amazing stuff that she's doing. And we're gonna um, drill down on some of, of these things. Shall we shall we let her in the room? let her in.
1: She also spent some time at Mizzou with uh, my, my good friend Libby Kogel over at Mizzou, I believe. here she is. Hi. Hello, Danny. Welcome to the show. Hey. How are you doing? Good. So I said all the
0: words about you, except for what university you're at right now, which I left off my list. So I blanked out.
2: Uh, University of Illinois, Chicago.
0: Right on. Welcome to the show. So, you know, the show's called the Sausage of Science, which is a play on like how the sausage is made. We want to know how the sauce science is made, but also the science and as our guest scientist this week we want to know Dr. Starkweather how you were made what went into motivating you really we want to know about motivations your sort of trajectory why you chose to be a professional and and we know a lot of our listeners our students who are wondering why human biology what what took you there for a profession
2: well first of all I'm Really happy to be here. I've listened to many, many episodes of the podcast, and I also often assign them in place of reading my freshman and sophomore level classes, so I love it. Well, the really embarrassing answer to your question is that I've always been a nosy person, which I think lends itself very well to being an anthropologist. (laughs)
0: Liking gossip and dirt? is in fact helpful. And I realize when I'm digging for gossip and dirt, I'm just doing ethnographic research.
2: I I like that. And I'm going to use that in my personal life. Yes, yes. And I mean, when I'm in the field site, I am all about like, oh, there's something happening over there. we got to go. we got to (laughs) go. Let's find out what it is. Um, But so the less embarrassing in that, you know, I've just always been really interested in kind of the way that humans that different people live to people who are different from me. Um, and just literally like other people, um, you know, the way they live their lives and um, the cultures that they live in. And I've always been just super fascinated by that stuff. And so um, I was in for a while um, at the University of Nebraska. Um, I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska, and uh, um, I took Two anthropology classes in the same semester, and I don't know why. I can't remember. I was a psychology major, but I think I messed my schedule or something. And so I took one class. Oh gosh, I can't even remember. But from Alan Osborne, I remember the teacher. And then I took cultural anthropology from Ray Hames at Nebraska. You know, we read a lot of ethnographies in his class. I read Dancing Skeletons as the the ethnography you know that I chose um, to write my report on and just totally fell in love. And like the way that he lectures about things and the general you know, curiosity about like broad things in the world that he kind of brings to class. I just saw that and I thought, oh, I want to do that. <laughs> um, and so a long and sordid history between undergrad school, which included me living in Taiwan for a year. I did my master's then with Ray at Nebraska ended up doing my PhD at Mizzou with Mary Shank. I think that having the time off honestly between undergrad and graduate school um, made me think like, okay, yeah, I could get a job um, that I may or may not really enjoy or I could go to graduate school and work towards a career that I know is a great fit for me and that I would really love. And so that was what motivated me to do it, I think. And then just like general, I mean, interest in basically everything that Ray taught. And also um, Pat Draper was at the time. And I mean, I'd been out of school for several years when I went back. And I remember um, being in one of Pat's, all of Pat's lectures actually, and she was old school. So she would write stuff on the chalkboard. And she had notes that she was reading from. And I mean, like my notebooks were just like you know, margin notes and everything. And just, you know, it's when stuff like that happens, it's like, I'm doing, I'm where I'm like, where I'm supposed to be. I'm doing the right thing because Mm -hmm. I just can't get enough of it.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's so many times on
2: the show, but you've listened to the show. So, you know,
1: uh, you know how important those early undergrad mentors are. And it's always really interesting. By the way, Chris has lost audio, so he's working on getting it back. So just oh, heads okay. up, it's going to be you and me chatting for a while. Um, All right. <laughs> but yeah, and it's always really interesting to to hear the connections because you'll you'll often hear certain programs come up again and again and again. Uh, and this might be the first one where we've had a, a strong Nebraska connection, so that's really good to hear. But yeah. I. I, I it's so rare to hear somebody not mention a really influential undergrad mentor in some way. So that always makes us happy. And it also makes you think about, shit, who are we inspiring or not inspiring <laughs> no, <laughs> At the moment, I know. <laughs> as we teach in our own <laughs> classrooms? And like, are they going to remember my teaching style, you know, in a positive I mean, light I mean, 10 years from now or I mean, not? I mean, I really <laughs> <laughs> After yesterday class completely devolved. So who knows what they're going to think of me down the line. Uh, But anyway, so you have been incredibly productive in the past two years, which I mean, kudos to you, because the world is a shit show. And like, no one can go into the field or really collect new data. And so I imagine, like me, you've been cranking out papers that you've been meaning to crank out because now you aren't doing other things.
2: (laughs) But you've had what
1: six articles come out in the past two years, and you've covered a wide range of journals, which is really, really wonderful. And these come from a few different projects. And so could you maybe kind of highlight what those main projects are for our listeners?
2: Yes, sure. So I would say that many, I think two of the papers that have come out in the last year have been papers, year, year and a half have been papers that I took, that I was, you know, lead author on, but the rest were all collaborative. I don't say that to diminish, you know, any of the work that I've done or anything like that, but that in the tough times, those collaborations can really come through for you. it's
1: I, yeah. I don't even like it takes a village. It yeah. takes several villages to, yes. you know, to get proper scientific yes. work done.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like, you know, yeah. So, I mean, so that is definitely true. So there are, Three kind of main, I think, I had to look these papers up because I couldn't remember what they all were. Yeah, um, right? So- like, I forget the title and hell, half the time I
1: forget the results. Oh, Once yeah. it's published, it's gone.
2: <laughs> I look up my own citations all the time. Um, <laughs> so two of them came from work that I have done with Brooke Shelza and Sean Prawl. And for people who don't know, Brooke Shelza um, started, I think, gosh, it's gotta be maybe 14 years ago, um, started a field project working with Himba pastoralists in Namibia. Mm-hmm. And um, and Himba women, uh, well, men and women have uh, multiple mates. And when I was doing my master's thesis, I wrote my master's thesis on polyandry and multiple mating for women in particular, and this the sort of like strategic decision-making of women is an overarching theme of my research but the multiple mating piece in particular is all really interesting to me. I applied for a postdoc with Brooke several years ago. I did not get it. Um but what I did get instead was Sean got the postdoc. Um I got a uh, a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute who like was, you know, working with Brooke at the time. So anyway, in to the field with Brooke and Sean, um we collected some data on well, what what I was really, and what Brooke was really interested in was seasonally, how do economic needs change and access to partners, male partners or other resource providers like parents, like women's parents and things like that? How does that also change seasonally? And then, you know, does that impact their ability to get access to resources when they really need them. And so the, um, I think this separation paper that just recently came out in social sciences, some of that data, um, it it maps out the proximity of the focal woman to her boyfriend and her husband at any given time, and then shows how resource access really maps onto that. So that I think is super interesting. And then the other, I love, it was the giving game paper. That's what we call it. Um, where Brooke and Sean and I kind of, Brooke took the lead, I would say, but Brooke and Sean and I came up with this kind of like an economic game, sort of, um, where we interviewed men and we went through all these different scenarios, asking them like hypothetically to allocate resources to kids from different kinds of partnerships, as well as women um, from different kinds of, you know, partnerships and just trying to kind of get at, you know, paternal investment stuff. So, yeah, so that was really fun one to write, I would say. And then Navigating Cross-Cultural Research, or that's at least the part of the title. That came out of a workshop at the Max Planck Institute that Robin Nelson um, and I organized. And lots and lots of anthropologists uh, were in the room and we all talked a lot together and kind of had these different breakout groups talking about different aspects related to research that's done with living human populations. And so it was the first paper that came out of that workshop, kind of ethical and methodological consideration in the field um, and for field scientists. And then the other two papers that I took the lead on came out of my primary field work, which is uh, done in Bangladesh with a group called Shodogore. And I think uh, the paper that just came out was Todegore Fathers, um, which I know we'll talk about more in a minute, so I won't talk too much about that. And the other one um, that came out last year, I think, was about women's economic risk-taking and sort of socio-ecological predictors of women's risk-taking. I feel like I have been busy, but you know, doesn't really, it's, it's a doesn't long, really hit homes, a long slow listening. burn
0: though, right? I mean, it's a culmination yeah. of a lot of years of work.
2: That's right. Cause that's you right. had all
0: these irons in the fire several years ago. Last time I, I talked to you. So, yeah. um, congrats that that's, it's validating, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully I, now I'm, that I'm in a tenure track position, they will continue to come out.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's good timing for you, right? Cause you can yeah. put them all towards like keeping the job, which is always yeah. the annoying part after getting the job. Exactly. Right? Oh my yeah. God. Don't even get me started. But I, I had a quick speaking of stuff like that. I have a quick question. Um, so, I wouldn't have known this before. last time I talked to you, um, to ask you about M- Max Planck, but um, I'm curious if they give you a history of the place, because I just read Nicholas Langelitz's uh, Chimpanzee Culture Wars, which talks a lot about the history of that place.
2: Oh. it's um, And
0: apparently it used to be the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Did you know that, Kara? Yeah. yeah. It's probably good to change after yeah. World War II and everything. <laughs>
1: Sorry, I was muted, but yeah, yeah. You don't want the Kaiser Wilhelm connected to you, do you? Not, not a good look. Yeah, it was fascinating.
0: (laughs) It was all about like the sort of um, hubs for evolutionary anthropology, and that's that's one of them.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's the institute. I mean, in and of itself, is really. I mean, it's really kind of an umbrella under which many smaller institutes and then departments within those institutes exist. And I mean, there are just tons of them all over Germany and all like really throughout Europe and it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I don't <laughs> um, think we have a model
0: yeah. like it here.
2: No,
0: we so don't. It, no. it's one of the reasons why I have a difficult time wrapping my mind around how it can even exist and do all the oh, stuff yeah. that is so central to what we're interested in, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We don't have a comparable model here. So as as you noted, you know, what we are focusing on for the podcast is is actually the the piece that you just had published and and the work that you're the primary PI for. So the article is called, Are Fathers a Good Substitute for Mothers? Paternal Care and Growth Rates in Chodagore? Is that how you Mm -hmm. said it's pronounced? Yeah, that's right. So who are they? And how did you, if you didn't say it already, because I lost my audio there for a second, how did you come to be working among such an interesting population? Yeah,
2: um, so uh, yes thank you very much. Um, and I have to say that the title of that paper is a callback to um, a paper, a paper that Jeff Winking wrote several years ago titled, "Are Father's Really That Bad? Or something like, so I was like, yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like, get Jeff back for this. <laughs> um, yeah, so the the people are amazing. Um, they are a community, an ethnic group, really, um, of people who live in Bangladesh. The research that I've done has been the first sort of like ethnographic or empiric, empirical work that has been done with any Shodagore group or at so least. You
0: mean the size of their community is small, yes?
2: Yeah. 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 The size of the community is small. So there are um, Shodagore people uh, and Shodagore communities all over Bangladesh um, mm-hmm. in, in sort of in particular locations there. Um, But the actual, like, number of people in the country who identify as Chodagor is unknown. So I work in communities in really five different communities that are in Motlab, Bangladesh. And I'm working there because my PhD advisor, Mary Schenk works in Motlab, but she works with the with the village populations of uh, people who are majority Muslim, minority Hindu, um, very culturally Muslim, Hindu, you know, background, and, uh, and primarily agricultural, et cetera, et cetera. So Mary had done a lot of field work there. And when I was starting to think about my dissertation work, I said, you know, Mary, I like, I'm just really interested in smaller a smaller group that I could return to over and over and have you know like long-term relationships with people so you know because again because you know of my interest in knowing about people's lives like I really <laughs> want to be able to go back and and just know people for a long time and really get to know them well it's and sort so of Mary, like
0: um Gananath Obisakari always advocated for this. I don't know if you're familiar with his work he wrote Medusa's no. hair. He's a psychological anthropologist, but he would be like, Yeah, if you haven't known him for like ten years, you really shouldn't be writing about him, you know. What I mean, really deep, deep ethnographic knowledge, so
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there have been things that I have found out, you know, years. After the fact. And so we've had to go back and re interview people about a particular thing because I just didn't know, or, or they didn't know me well enough to share with me the information. So I, you know, so Mary said, Well, hey, there's this, this group of people who live on boats, and no one seems to know anything about them. Um, like including just the people who live in the villages, right? And who who work um, nearby and everything don't know much about them. So I got an REG award from NSF, Uh the research experience for graduates. I went and did a pilot study in 2011. And I just, I really, really loved the field site and the people. And um, there were lots of sort of interesting things that were becoming apparent to me, even in the very short period of time that i there. So the Shodagor are this ethnic community. They traditionally, and I say traditionally because this is what they say, um, traditionally were nomadic and um, and all the people lived on boats. Nowadays, <laughs> I feel like an old person saying that <laughs> nowadays, um, <laughs> the boat dwelling is diminishing greatly in number, um, people are moving onto the land uh, kind of as quickly as they can. And so the nomadic lifestyle has also diminished a lot. So there are still some people who live on boats and move relatively frequently. And there are a lot of people who live in, um, I I mean, I just, I would call them kind of makeshift houses, like uh, platforms up on stilts that are just Right on the riverbanks in their own little communities. And the people that I work with in Motlab, the communities I work with, are either currently boat dwelling or have been in the last 10 years or so. So, you know, still kind of still maintaining a little bit of that lifestyle. And they, for work, the, almost all of the men fish for, you know, they do some subsistence and they also will sell their fish in the markets for cash and then about half of the women fish and they usually do that with with their husbands and their kids um like in a solitary single single um fishing boat and then the other half of the women work as traders and so the interesting things about them i mean obviously the ecology is really interesting on a boat is a really kind of unique ecology although not not quite as unique i think as people actually assume because there are lots of kind of water dwelling people all over um, Asia in, in little pockets throughout, so a um, so little more common than people often think. But the gender norms are really different in the group, which you know kind of was part of the impetus for this paper. Within MOTLAB, communities in MOTLAB, there are actually ecological differences between the places that the groups typically reside. And then there are actual, and then there are also seasonal differences, and so it sets up this really nice opportunity for between and within group or individual comparisons. So methodologically, it's also quite a rich, you know, population to work with because. You can really get a sense for how the ecology is impacting people's lives. So I
1: have a series of three questions and I can repeat them if needed. I want to know what the boats look like. And when you say nomadic, like when they raise anchor and move, like how far? Like what is the actual ranging? And then I'm also kind of curious about what effects of climate change they might be witnessing. And is that driving the movement on land?
2: So the boats are pretty small. So every, pretty much every family who lives on it, well, pretty much every family, every Chodegor family has like a small fishing boat, just like a little wooden boat that's maybe like 10 feet from end to end. and It's just, you know, a flat kind of platform in the middle. And then, but the houseboats themselves are bigger than that but not that much bigger so I think the average houseboat is like 14 feet from end to end and then I can't remember I don't think I ever measured how wide but basically when I lay down in the boat which, which one kind soul let me do because I was like let me just check this out here there's room for like you know like two maybe across wait right, um, like maybe, height,
1: your height wise or like wh- no width. which way are you okay like which shoulder wise. To shoulder
2: yeah so. okay of me maybe two and a half of me yeah so these are really small and they're like four
1: maybe five feet wide and how many people are living on the boat I don't get like what's the family size
2: the family size well it's it ranges obviously so Mm -hmm. you know older families had many more kids but the boat dwelling families seem to have fewer kids Mm -hmm. now at least on average than the land dwelling um but usually they have Two, three, like young kids at a time, and then as the kids get older, they might like sleep on the fishing boat overnight, or go sleep like at their in their grandma's boat or something like that, you know. Um. <laughs> so yeah, they're not big, and they they cook, they do their washing, like they store all of their possessions, and they have like quite in like very interesting technology to store everything too. So, it's, is there um, like a, a covering fantastic. or a canopy or something to protect yeah. when it rains? Yes. So it's, they call it a Choy Noka. And what that means is like a covered boat. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's the boat and then you usually bamboo covering, and then they might put um, things like plastic or tin over the bamboo. And then another layer of bamboo to keep it, you know, keep rain from getting in because yeah, they do have like very intense monsoon seasons and stuff. So yes, but I've sat in those boats in storm and they are pretty hardy. (laughs) So the movement now what usually happens is that most people who move now will move seasonally and so they'll move and they primarily move within motlob so they'll between two communities in motlob where they probably have in both of them so the the communities themselves like the locations of them don't change they remain pretty uh, regular and there's kind of a core group of people who are always there and then you know people will move between the communities that are i mean i don't know distance wise exactly where they are but probably a couple like two hours maybe three hours to move your boat from one okay. to the other and then there are other people who during the rainy season um their primary occupation is fishing and so they will just they will move you know every days or so between these two um, two groups that are close to closest to one of the really, really big rivers in Bangladesh, you know, for like for fishing purposes. So some people move a lot, like move their houseboats a lot, and some people move twice seasonally.
0: Do they have guests? Do they put up anthropologists who are uh, immersing <laughs> themselves in the field somewhere in the boat?
2: So I've never lived in a boat um, or even spent the night in a boat. And the primary reason for that is... Um, their safety yeah because like i i mean i think i would be fine um but they would like they would be very concerned about me i would possibly be putting them you know at risk um Mm -hmm. by drawing attention and also it would be like very culturally abnormal sort of within Bangladesh for me to do that. And so my mm-hmm. collaborators in Bangladesh, I think, would be very concerned about me mm-hmm. doing that. And so I've never, you know, I've never really broached the subject. Yeah. But um, no, I
0: mean, but I can't wait for your book. So we, we get all the details <laughs> on this, right? It, there's mm-hmm. no ethnographic study uh, of the Shodagor. Yeah. So... so. So it is up to you.
1: How's climate change affecting them? And is that yeah. related to their movement patterns at all?
2: Yeah, I think, yes. Um, so, okay, so here's how climate change seems to be affecting them so far. It seems to be um, elongating the dry season And the dry season has been hotter and drier. And then usually the flooding, which every year during the rainy season, a large portion of the country of Bangladesh floods. And it's just sort of regular seasonal, you know, expected levels of flooding. But it's become more and more intense over the several years. So for one thing, when it floods a lot, the houses that are up on stilts will be like, you know, the water will be at the base of their, like the platform of their home. And so people's homes get close to flooding and stuff like that. So that's not great. What the result of that is two, two different things. The elongated means that there's less time for fishing during the rainy season. And the more intensive flooding means that the fishing is not as profitable because the, you know, the water levels are much higher. The population density of the fish is uh, lower because of that. And the salination of the water changes. Um, And and so people who are fishing during that time are less successful. And this is what they've reported so far. And I've actually collected economic and dietary data. There was a flood in 2017 um, that I happened to actually be in the field for. And so we have sort of like, before we have data from before the flood, during the flood and after the flood. So I'm excited to see what the data say. But the reason that the bad fishing and less fishing is important is because fishing is uh, produces really reliable returns. So you either catch a little bit of fish and then you eat it that night, or you catch, you know, have a fairly good catch and you sell it for cash. And whatever you don't use to buy food during the rainy season, you save it and you use it as you know a backup plan during the season Women's trading, which happens primarily during the dry season, is um, economically risky. There's a lot of fluctuation in women's returns, which is cross-culturally very unusual. And so the, the backup, the savings that they they are able to accrue from fishing is really critical. So it's hitting them hard, it seems. Water levels are also rising in Bangladesh. And my guess would be that a lot of Chodagor people will, because of the precarity of where they're homes are located, that they will end up back on boats within the next couple of generations.
1: So I was a little surprised with people moving onto land. I'm like, considering more flooding, I thought more people would be going onto boats. And then do they, do they, it's always interesting to see how different groups of people kind of understand climate change and recognize it. Uh, Is this a thing that you've talked about with, uh, with them at all?
2: We've talked about it a little bit. Yeah. So the moving on to the land thing is kind of a, um, it's kind of a status thing. And it's also a ease of life thing. So people save for years to, you know, buy a plot of land and then they save for several years more to buy and build their house. So it'll be kind of heartbreaking if they end up having to move out of them. But yeah, people... People definitely notice that, you know, water levels are rising, that the flooding is becoming more intense. They notice all of this stuff. Um, I haven't talked to them like specifically about happening and how, you know, how are you handling that? I've talked to a lot of like my friends and colleagues in Bangladesh about that, but not not Shotogore people yet specifically but I also haven't spent much time in the field recently
0: so yeah for, for, for obvious reasons right yeah so so you, that's a nice setup for thinking of so that the, the, the differing roles that um, mothers and fathers are taking in regard to subsistence and and the seasonal effects of that so in this paper that we're talking about you compared additive and substitutive models of parenting so additive would be, the mother and the father are able to do child care. And the substitutive is if the mother is at market during some seasons, the father is at home. And you are looking at how those sort of strategies might impact child growth patterns. So what what are you seeing with the Shodogar child growth patterns that led you to suspect there might be some impacts of these strategies?
2: Well, so I would say there wasn't anything specific based on the data that I had on growth patterns to that point that was that led me to this question. It was more of a theoretical drive, but a paper that Monica Keith and I wrote in 2018, I think uh, AJHB, basically just looked at uh, height weight and BMI for all like all adults and children, and we're looking at basically predictors of variation including, you know, relatedness and, and socioecological predictors. But when we plotted the people's, you know, height, weight, and BMI, what was very obvious from the data was, was that there's a lot of variation, at least in sort of those static measures of body size. And so at least I knew that we would have variation, that we might be able to, you know, do um, some, some interesting tests on the data. It's really uh, driven by... Theories about the importance of fathers in evolutionary history. So Shotokor fathers are interesting because they do a lot of direct child care, which, you know, is certainly true in many other human societies. What's really unique about these guys, or what seems to be unique anyway, is that they're doing it for like all day, every day, for sometimes six months out of the year. Their wives will leave home in the morning. They go, like the women who are traitors. Will go to the market, they get these giant baskets full of household goods, and then they travel, you know, an hour or two outside of their own community to sell the goods to other people. And they don't get back until, you know, after dark most nights. And the whole time for these families, when they have young children, the dad is the primary caregiver. And so that's a really pretty unique. Across cultures. And but then in the fishing families, fathers are also doing a lot of direct care, but they're doing it on the fishing boat all day, you know, all day, every day, same thing, but the moms are there too. And so You know, we might expect, based on lots of data that have come out that show a lot of mixed results, frankly, about the impact of fathers on their kids, you know, we might expect different results, and we might expect that having two parents around would be better for kids, personally, than Mm -hmm. having one. Anyone who's ever tried to feed a toddler before knows. (laughs) It's a very, like... (laughs) It's not easy, right? I mean, like, you have it takes diligence, it takes like you distraction,
1: know, you to... multitasking skills, yes. at least with my nephew. <laughs> Chris, I muted you.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's not an easy thing to do. And also, you have to have some consistency in like when you're feeding the kids mm-hmm. and what you're like, all that kind of stuff, or at least that's kind of the ideal. And so, so, our like, if you have both parents around, uh, you should be doing better than if you just have one. And we, kind of found that to an extent but also yeah i mean really- that that that's our next question so let's just lay
1: that <laughs> out like very yeah. obviously for for our audience and so it's really counterintuitive that you found children who had substitutive models grew slower than those who had both parental care but in the end those kids ended up being taller and heavier so they took longer yeah. to get to that end point but the endpoint point would you would think that means they are nutritionally better off than those with two parents. So explain that result, if you could, for us.
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, so there's a couple things. There's a seasonal effect in which it gets kind of confusing. So during the dry season in trading households, the moms are gone and the dads are the caregivers. In fishing households, moms and dads are caregivers all year round. So when you compare fishing households mom and dad to just dad in the trading households during the dry season. The kids in fishing households are growing faster than the kids in the trading household. But when you compare the same households during the rainy season, so now you're comparing mom plus dad to just mom in the trading households during the rainy season, the kids in the trading households are growing faster than kids in fishing households. So having just mom, kids are doing a little bit better than mom plus probably really more of a, possibly an economic effect. Possibly also, you know, different. I don't. I don't have an a priori reason to think that there are different disease burdens between these households during the seasons, um, but it's possible that there are. Is there a catch-up effect? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I think what's happening. Um, what the data seems to suggest is that there is a catch up effect, and that when the moms are caregiving, the kids are catching up. Probably, you know, that's how they're ultimately kind of getting ahead. But the other thing that's going on is that in households where, when the dad is the caregiver, if they have aloe parents around, the more aloe parents they have around, and the less solo care the dad is giving, the better the kids are growing. And so I think allo parents also have, allo parents plus dad and then mom have a buffering effect against um, this maybe slightly less good care. dad So going I'm going to go out, out
0: on a limb here as a dad and suspect that the dads, for the most part, are less likely to allo parent than the mothers in general. And so I wonder if, if the women, when you see them by themselves, they're, they're allo parenting more than the men when they're by themselves. Do you see anything like that?
2: Do you mean like um, asking for help from alloparents?
0: Yeah, I'm like wondering if if there's a catch-up effect when mothers are by themselves. I'm wondering if they're also alloparenting and if they just actually do it more than fathers do when they're by themselves.
2: I don't know. Um, That's a good question. So, I mean, I know one thing, again, you know, an interesting kind of little ecological thing that's happening is that during the rainy season, because everything is, much flooded it's harder to get you need a, a, a boat basically to get between either between boats or between households and so people just kind of have less access to other households in general so occasionally during that time yep. you'll see the mom take her kids and like go visit her mom in the other house across the group but by and large the moms are spending a large portion of the day like alone on the boat with their kids during the rainy season. And so I also think that that's probably um, having an impact. First of all, the kids might be less active, so they might be expending fewer calories, um, although they do a lot of swimming. But also when you you have a child hostage on the boat, you know, theoretically speaking, not literally, um, you can, you know, it's easier to get them to eat regularly when you actually are there with them, right? During the dry season, if they're running around playing with their friends, it might be much more difficult to pin them down and get them to eat. And so it could just be easier to sort of get them to consume calories during the rainy season when they're just on the boat all the time. So I don't I don't know. I don't think that moms are utilizing allo parents more than dads. I do think that dads are utilizing the allo parents a lot. So, yeah, I don't I'm not entirely sure. Those are all my best guesses as to what might be happening. But the other thing I will say is that I think aside from kind of the interesting empirical findings, it they also really showed that if we we're just looking at static measures of body size, height, weight, and BMI, rather than growth rates, you know, the change in those variables, it would have told us a very different story than change over time. And so I think that's worth considering when, especially when we're thinking about the human father literature that often, you know, looked at th- at things like the effect of fathers on survival, or the effect of fathers on adult body size, or even on static measures of child body size, that those variables just might not be telling us the whole story. And that fathers might be a lot more important um, in given circumstances than what those, you know, kind of gross level variables are really revealing.
1: I love this for so many reasons, and one, that you are taking into account all of these different variables, and this isn't a straightforward picture. There's a lot going on. But I also like it because it again highlights human cultural variation, that there isn't one monolithic population that mom always does the parenting. And dad is off doing other things, which so many people have used as models for human evolution. And it's yeah. bullshit, because you just have to look around and, and see the amazing <laughs> range of variation that's actually going on. So... Thank you for, you know, doing the work <laughs> that yet again demonstrates that humans are highly variable. It's really, really wonderful. And so this is not just you, as you have said so many times that you have a field team that helps you do all of this work. And that's always spectacular. Uh, and you have folks that are collecting data year round. So tell us who that team is and what they're doing. And are they doing things still in COVID times? Or if they also kind of shut things down? I we have no clue, so fill us yeah. in.
2: I should have mentioned them before, but thank you so much for asking. They are collecting data, right? Um, they are just freaking amazing. So, when I was at the Max Planck Institute as a postdoc, I had the great fortune of being in the first wave of people um, who were in the department of oh god, it's like ecology behavior and culture or something like that. Um, it's, it's the department that's head, headed by Richard McElrith. And um, Richard's great vision for his department is to uh, basically you know, sidestep the kind of limitations that come from American funding systems and American tenure systems and provide people with resources to run long-term field projects Um, that give us a better idea about how humans live. And um, also, you know, if you're lucky, then when you're running a long-term field project like that, then you end up with what I ended up with which is a lot of kind of before and after data and so like through funding from the MPI and from Richard um, I was able to set up this ongoing data collection project Um, it's a longitudinal project in which we are basically collecting detailed economic data from adults from individuals um, as as a lot of health data, um, mostly so far, has been interview based. My field team are interviewing respondents um, in the same communities, sometimes weekly, their week, um, and this has been going on since twenty seventeen. And I want to say because this, when I say it, it sounds like a horrible burden on the communities. So, for instance, one of the field team is has a, a medical background. And so, you know, he's able to um, help people and answer questions, things like that when he's in the field site. And so we do do our our very best with the funding that we have to make sure that, you know, the communities are all being served (laughs) through this research in various ways. You know, if anyone knows a philanthropist, then I think we could do a lot more for the communities. And also people always, always know that they have the option to just say they don't want to be interviewed on any given day or for the whole time, if they want. So people are willing really to participating, but the field team led by the person who was, uh, my research assistant work when I was there in 2014 for I think 10 months or something. Um, her name is Fatima Tu-Zohora, uh, but she her nickname is Reba, And that is just like the best thing that has literally ever happened to me, aside from my husband and kid. But uh, she's fantastic. So. Repa was the glue that held my 2014 dissertation project together. And so she has now transitioned to being the um, sort of like project manager in country. We work with a non-governmental organization called ICDDRB, which is the International Center for Diarrheal Disease Research Bangladesh. They are a pretty big NGO um, re- like research hospital within the country, and they have a location in Motlab. And so um, we have, they, you know, they sponsor my visa. So they helped me hire the field team and they do a lot of like logistical support. I have a PI uh, in country there, Dr. Neural Alam, who, you know, <laughs> is the one who like has to bear the brunt of all the paperwork and all the administrative stuff. Um, and he's absolutely wonderful. He and Ripa are in Dhaka regularly, and then there are on the field team who live in Matlab. So uh, Umahani, actor. I always only call them by their nicknames. So Hani, Lila Parveen, and then um, Kanchen, uh is Siddiq Udjaman. And these guys are out there every day, you know, collecting data. And so when COVID hit we actually had several people's phone numbers at the time. And mostly I wanted to like keep up with everybody and make sure everybody was doing okay. And, you know, offer assistance if, and when we could. Um, And so I had them contacting people by phone and then they just ended up doing their interviews over the phone for months. They're back to doing field interviews now, uh, you know, using a lot of um, PPE and stuff like that. But yeah. So, I mean, amazingly, uh, we collected height, weight and BMI right before or not BMI, but height and weight um, and upper arm circumference right before COVID hit. And then we were able to collect it again in the fall of 2020 when things were kind of on the decline and people were able to go back into the field. And so once we actually like, get you know, a handle on that data, it will be a very interesting, tell an interesting tale, I think. Um, but none. I, this would obviously be possible if uh, they weren't doing what they do all the time. So
0: that sounds yeah. dreamy uh, to have. Yeah. Like that for research uh, on the ground. Um,
2: it's pretty and, great.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering then, right? Your your second or third year as ten years. First. first year. Right yeah. now, first year.
2: Uh, this all is right. my second semester. I started in January.
0: Okay, so you and you have, it uh, sounds like, ton of data. Are you recruiting grad students or anything like that?
2: I have a grad student uh, who just started this fall, so that's great. <laughs> She's great. I am hoping to get some funding to hire a postdoc. So the amount of data is a blessing and a curse, I would say. Um, there's, there is so much, and there are so many kinds of data. There's observational data. Um, you know, I have Uh, scan samples and focal follows. I collected uh, GPS movement data on fishing boats, but also on women when they were trading. And lots and lots of interviews through an NSF funded project, I was able to collect dried blood spots um, that have not yet been assayed because of COVID. um, But so, so many, so much data and so many kinds of data um, that it's kind of uh, unwieldy. Yeah. So well, that's I, why I'm asking, because yeah. it sounds like yeah. you
0: don't need to go into the field for a decade, but you are, your team is cranked. So you, you just have this dreamy, wonderful opportunity for lots of people to come and work under you and churn out a few dissertations or two and, you know, be of service to this community that, that, and I, I love to hear that they have support on the ground for, for what they're doing and that they're, there's like immediate sense of giving back, which is always, always the difficulty of achieving of, of the data being meaningful to yeah. the people who have given it to you. Because yeah. you're right, it, it does sound like a burden for them.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I'm a human behavioral ecologist and also have gone much more heavily into uh, the, you know, human biology side of things recently. But primarily that was because I was asked to by the community they want. Mm-hmm. So, one thing that I actually failed to mention um, is that because ICDDRB has this presence in MATLAB, have the longest running health and demographic surveillance system in the world right now, basically collects data on people in MATLAB, health and demographic data. We're included in the HDSS, the health and demographics uh, system, have a lot of medical benefits because, you know, ICDDRB needs to, you know, also make it worth their time um, and give back to so women who are pregnant get free, um, totally free pre and postnatal care and counseling, including, you know, visits of health workers to their homes and things like that. They can give birth for free in any of the hospitals or subcenters uh, that ICDDRB runs. People um, can go to one of the hospitals or subcenters for any number of kinds of medical care and treatment for a really, really small price. And also, kids up until the age of five get free medical care from ICDDRB. Shodagor families, the ones that I work with, are not included in this uh, surveillance system for many reasons. But previously, it was because of their, you know, nomadic lifestyle or semi-nomadic lifestyle and the precarity um, that that kind of introduced to uh, the data collection for ICDDRB. And so. <laughs> so they they're not included and so what they see is that yes everyone around them you know has to answer questions every once in a while they also have this not only do they have this kind of medical care but they also have a lot of knowledge about their own health status and mm-hmm. knowledge is power especially in circumstances like you know high disease burden places like Bangladesh and so you know things like being able to symptoms of something and then also being able to get it treated as quickly as possible. So they asked that I do more research on health-related issues because that's what they really want to know about. And they want, you know, more information about their own health status.
1: That's like so, the like, NSF gen- definition of the co-creation <laughs> of knowledge. I mean, that's seriously what it is. It's like getting getting the folks you work with involved from the start and seeing what questions they have and what's relevant to them. That's absolutely wonderful.
2: I've been inspired by many other like wonderful anthropologists um, and who have done this before me and showed me the way. So, you know, I'm, yeah.
1: We stand on the The, shoulders of giants always. Yeah. And Uh, I think that's
2: a great thing about our field too, is that- We keep building. Yeah. And we do it together. (laughs) Um, I feel like
1: we could probably talk to you forever if, if yeah. for no other reason than to keep describing the boats, because I'm just like so <laughs> curious. But all good things must come to an end. And we always like to end our our episodes with learning a little bit about what you do for fun when you aren't trying to manage your massive overload of data.
2: Yeah, um, I'm in my first year on the tenure track and I have a three-year-old, so I don't do that much for fun anymore. <laughs> Three-year-olds um, aren't fun now? He's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, like, I spend as much time obviously with my family as I can. Um, I really love volleyball. I was a college volleyball player. I don't play anymore because many reasons, um, but I watch volleyball whenever I have the opportunity. But I mean, I, I really, you know, for fun, I like to read, I like to travel, I like to cook
1: it has
0: been a pleasure and i want to say thank you for both being on the pod and also using it in your classrooms i have found that when i have assigned a book that i don't have time to reread if we've interviewed them i can even re-listen to the our own podcasts to be prepped for my class even if i didn't share it with them so like
1: (laughs) it's another hack for academics chris we can now hack
0: Katie Starkweather's <laughs> articles by reading, listening to the podcast so that yes. we can sound uh, like we know something about mm-hmm. Chotagor, people's growth and development and, and parenting so there we go oh, yeah.
1: thank okay. you so 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 much